You're listening to the Digital Data Cafe podcast, where we talk about everything data-driven in your world. Join us each week to hear from the world's top business and industry leaders on why using data in a digital world matters. Here's your host, Albert Thompson. Hey, good afternoon. Thank you for joining another quality episode of uh, Digital Data Cafe. Um, we're moving right along here, but I'm super excited to have our latest guest. Um, he's an author. He's a speaker. He's an advisor. He's a media commentator. Um, but more importantly, he, he's a good friend of mine. His name is Richard Battle. And um, Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. Albert, thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you today. Well, I appreciate it. So, um, Richard, I think the core focus here and what we really want to talk about today is um, sales, right? Sales leadership, um, management, right? What is, how does that, how does that really work? And that's really been your forte. And if you don't mind, I'm going to steal your thunder here. Okay. But um, you've said this to me several times, so I have to say it, but you've been in sales leadership for 44 years, eight months. And if I'm not mistaken, two weeks. Well, that's that's the number amount of time that I had revenue responsibilities, starting from an individual sales territory to global responsibility. And so when you have revenue responsibility, that's that's a different game than if you're working in a different part of an organization. Gotcha. All right. Well, you know what? Let's start there, because I think a lot of our guests um, and audience want to hear about, um, you know, your revenue responsibilities in those 44 years. So I think what's kind of chomping at the bit here is what's What's your story? How did you get to where you're at today? Well, what's what's interesting, and I've escaped the pigeonhole of just the business and sales only with what I'm doing currently. But when I was in the business world, that entire 40 plus years was in business to business disruptive technology sales where customers did not have to buy the products because it was selling new technologies to replace old technologies. And so it was missionary selling, creating marketplaces out of nothing, which is totally different than if you're selling an existing product where a buyer has a choice of buying between you and one or two other people, Mm -hmm. when you sell a disruptive technology, basically the buyer, uh, everything the buyer can spend their money on is competition, vacation for the wife, uh, other decisions, paving the parking lot of the organization, anything else they can spend money on is competition to you, which means you have to be much sharper to persuade them to do something they don't have to do. Yeah, I, I like that. Right. So you talk about a disruptive technology. So um, essentially, you know, really different than, you know, say, um, like to your point, right, trying to expand a different product or try to be you know, a competitor to different other products that you're coming in there with something new, unique different and you have to take them from zero to sold right exactly and just think of your yourself personally think of things that an individual can buy but doesn't have to buy i mean life insurance is one of those things you don't have to buy it but it's something that can offer protection and other benefits and that's kind of the decision you have do you do it or not once you decide to buy it there may be more than one competitor or there may only be one If there's only one, that's a disadvantage because that makes people uh, skeptical whether it's really needed or not. If there's more than one, there can be an advantage. No, that's a that's a really good point. So you really have to sell the why you have to build the value and the why that they need this. 
Well, that's that's very important because it's just like any training. And you think back to little kids. What's the question little kids always ask? Why? Why? And so training or sales like that, you have to sell the why before the how. Hmm. And too often salespeople, especially in a missionary or disruptive technology, they assume a buyer will have their own why and all they have to do is sell the how. And when they do that, they're the least successful salespeople. Well, you know what? You, you've brought up a couple of things here, and I want to make sure that we come back and, and visit on those, but definitely want to talk about the why before the how. But before we do that, um, let's talk a little bit about your experience, because I think, you know, disruptive technology, it's like, so what did, what did Mr. Battle do here? What was his what was his gig? So you did 20 years, I think, right with uh, Bell and Howell. And if I'm not mistaken, um, they were acquired or folded into Snap-on, right? That, that's where they are currently. Yes. The, right. the last portion of that company. So can you share with us a little bit about that, you know, product, that disruptive technology you were actually positioning? Well, I, I want to start with one just before that uh, and then hit that one because that's an automotive industry. But I think it's so funny. I, when I came out of college, I worked for Burroughs, which is part of Sperry. And one of the products that we sold was electronic check signers. So executives didn't have to sign payroll or payables checks. And here we were a Fortune 500 co company. And one of our sales techniques was actually forging the buyer's signature right in front of them to show them how easily their signature could be forged and how much protection there was with the equipment we were selling. Really? And I can't even envision a company doing that currently. So right. that was the first, first experience, but the Bell and Howell experience was in the late eighties and it was the first commercial technology to use CD-ROM to replace uh, paper in a commercial atmosphere. And we came out with a product to replace parts catalogs for automotive dealers. Interesting. And, and so we had to go in and convince people who had used big racks of books for years and years and years that the technology would help them be more productive and sell more per parts person and not be a threat to those people's jobs. And we created that industry out of nothing in the late eighties, basically. Well, you know, it's um, it's interesting because in, in that time, right, you've got the the old school way of thinking. Um, you've got, hey, we're so used to, you know, looking at these manuals. We're looking at the parts catalogs and you're going to come in here now and you're going to tell me about some computer CD-ROM and how it's going to change my business. Um, I got to imagine it's it's not much different in terms of how today um, we have startups coming in talking about these SaaS technologies and how SaaS is going to change your business. It's just a different time and a different way of the technology making the businesses adapt and adopt. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you were able to overcome that, um, getting these folks to understand that technology would help them. Well, and that is exactly true. And that was my experience my whole career. The techniques and the requirements to be successful were the same, but the evolution of different technologies changed over that time period. Mm -hmm. And I believe it will continue to change over that time period. Uh, in the early 90s, there was a book called Crossing the Chasm, which came out. And when I read it, I felt like it was written about my exact experience in the late 80s because it examined the psychological makeup of different buyers on a product adoption uh, life cycle. Okay. And it established a chasm that if you didn't cross that chasm, you would fail. Mm -hmm. And so it made so much sense because 
we as salespeople think we can sell anybody. Right. But yet, if certain buyers you cannot sell, if you're not in the right place in the market, because some buyers want to be first, some buyers want to be last. Right. And so understanding their personalities are crucial. And the sooner you do that, the more efficient you can become and not waste time selling those people who are not sellable at that time. Yeah, I think I think you're, you're spot on. And actually, you know, this might be a good segue and a good opportunity for us to talk about, um, you know, really what does make sales leaders successful? Um, because a lot of this is really about technique. And a lot of it is about, you know, how um, our leadership and our skills are. Um, um, can differ. So let's talk about that a little bit. I think, you know, part of your forte is, is being a significant sales leader. So why don't we start with, with what you think the difference between say a sales leader and a manager is? Well, a leader to me, it's a much more comprehensive responsibility because a manager basically is executing tasks and someone can give them tasks and they can execute those tasks but they're limited to that. Whereas a leader has to be able to see and understand and identify the marketplace, the universe, people, uh, technologies that are coming, things from outside of their scope and be able to take all of that information and adapt it into a cohesive strategy to go succeed in the market. Absolutely. So, then let me ask you this then, just out of curiosity. So in, in your role with Bell & Howell or in some of the roles that you've seen with some companies today, um, where do you see best fit? Like, do you see managers being better suited for running, say, smaller teams? Or do you see leaders being better as managers or, or, or is it just too universal? Or what's your thoughts there? Well, I think it depends on the organization and it depends on the, the people that you have in those positions and what their skill sets are. Uh, and I've seen it within the same organization, a wide range of successes of leaders or managers based on how they adapted to the environment. Uh, and in that market that we created in the late 80s, for example, the market changed about every 90 days. Hmm. And if you didn't adapt, uh, for example, I had a sales rep in Atlanta. He could see change coming faster than anybody I ever had worked for me. Really? And he could anticipate, recognize and adapt very quickly. Mm -hmm. And so his sales results were much more uh, higher and more consistent. Hmm. Uh, next to him, I had a rep in Charlotte. He was very slow seeing change. And so his sales results were very much up and down, as you see, curve waves because he adapted slower. Right. And so being able to recognize change, adapting to it uh, and moving forward is so important. And the better reps or managers or leaders you have in positions, the better you'll be able to do that in a dynamic market. Yeah, that that's a that's a really great point. So here's the question. And and I'm from my experience and I would love to, to to glean some insight from you. But so how do you manage or how do you lead? Let's 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 maybe break it down into two categories. But how do you manage um, the two different types of personalities? Right. Because you still need them both to succeed. Right. I have a sales organization and I need to have my late adopters just as successful as my early adopters. Right. And now we've got the customer adoption that you're talking about, which has to you know, adopt to that technology. So you've got an early adopter as a salesperson selling to an early adopter as a, as a, as a business, but then you got your late adopter who can't see change. So now as a manager, how do you get them to meet those marks? 
Well, first thing is in, in a startup type environment where you're starting a new market, uh, I believe you have to have a team of hunters. Huh. Uh, they have to go out and create a market. They have to be given the freedom to wheel and deal to be successful. And what happens over time is you get the accountants more involved. They'll start regulating activity and wanting to measure activity based on calls, demonstrations, things of that nature. And yeah, that's all important, but your best closers when you're starting a market, they want that freedom to go out and create. And the more restricted they are, the less they like it and the more that they will pull at the bit because they don't want to be managed that way. Whereas once you have an established business, then you're more in the farming type business. And then you have people that execute to a plan and to measured activity. And they like that because they feel confident that being measured based on calls and demonstrations, that gives them job security. The hunters don't care about job security. They want the thrill of the hunt and right. the success of the clothes. So it's uh, it's interesting that you say that because even in um, in our organization, we we see that, right? We, we're a startup, right? So in the startup organization, you need those hunters. You need those, I think you called them earlier, missionary style, right? Yes. The go-getters, the ones that need to go out there, knock on doors and just spread the word, right? Um, and to manage them, you, you don't want to task orient those folks because you'll find that you end up constricting their success and their ability. Um, and then you've got the corporate side, right? Which I've worked in the corporate side and it's tasks, activities, phone calls, yeah. visits, demonstrations. Um, and then that's going to lead to a percentage of closes. Um, in your experience, how do you feel if you get it wrong, right? You, you put the corporate style into a startup or the startup style into a corporate. What, what do you tend to see happen there? Well, I don't think you'll succeed the way you want to because the hunters only care about two numbers. One are the sales volume and two is their commissions. Whereas the farmers, they get affirmation from all the different numbers because it makes them feel they're doing something. Uh, they don't measure the closes as much because they don't close as much. Right. And it's much more of an account manager type activity. So right. it's a, a broader activity in a measurement stage than just closing business. That's right. And it's and it's really two different personality types. Right. And Absolutely. maybe we can talk about that a little bit, because in my experience, right, you've got your hunter. You know, it's not that they can't develop relationships. It's not that they can't. You know, they're really good at developing fast, quick relationships, um, but they're not as motivated about digging in deep and getting into the analytics and digging into the reports and building out that long term relationship like your hunters. I mean, your farmers. So tell me what you find. Maybe the top two or three characteristics. Like I'm, I'm a I'm a I'm a sales manager now. I'm a hire. I'm a hiring manager. I want the best two to three characteristics in your experience of a hunter. And what are the two to three best characteristics of a farmer? Well, it's, it's kind of interesting. When I was hiring a guy in New Orleans several years ago, I called his reference and he said, well, the best thing I can tell you is it's easier to tame a lion than teach a sheep how to kill. <laughs> That's right. And that same rep would tell me that if he wasn't closing, he was an unpaid entertainer. Huh. And so that's just going in and making a call and not getting anything accomplished doesn't mean anything to a hunter, but right. to a farmer, they believe going in and talking to people and finding mm -hmm. out how their family's doing. Yes. They're, they're accomplishing something. And there are certain businesses where that works and that's what you want. 
But in a startup, that's not what you want. That's right. Especially when you're trying to survive and create that market, you've got to get out and get that penetration before you run out of funds or before competitors show up. Uh, you've got to succeed enough and get across that chasm and get it to where you can have farmers help you. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, I can really relate with what you're saying because you're right. Um, I, I tend to relate more to the hunter side, uh, full transparency. So I can, I can totally uh, relate, you know, when I would go and make those introductions, it's not that they weren't beneficial. It's not that they weren't helpful, but if I didn't knock out, you know, at least the next visit or at least getting one step closer to the close, it felt not productive, but on that farmer side, that would be productive. That would be helpful. Yes. Now, there are some people that can play both roles successfully, Mm -hmm. but there are there are others that can only play one of the two roles. And so as you're hiring, I believe you have to identify uh, which personality type you have based on their previous activities and uh, based on your interviewing. And hopefully you select the right one for the right role. Uh, I've certainly made mistakes myself in hiring where you think you've got the hunter and you end up with a farmer. Uh, one of the first guys, when I assumed a management role I had in Denver, and one of the things I found out about him was we had a remote sales force. They had to be what I call the Lone Ranger. And I found out that he was a type that did not like that environment. He wanted to go to an office in the morning, have a cup of coffee, talk to the other sales reps, go out and make calls and then come out back in the afternoon. So that was not the environment for that particular position and he did not succeed. So there's all kinds of other smaller pieces that you have to figure out is what makes the best type of rep we need to be successful at this stage of our business. You know, um, so interesting uh, that you that you bring that up. And let me ask you a question, and maybe you can provide some insight to some of our listeners today. Um, as you know, we've we've experienced this this COVID landscape, and um, you're going to have organizations that were born and and bred out of COVID, right? So they're they're not going to be the old school door knocking types that that you and I were. Um, <laughs> but there's now this Zoom landscape, right? There's these Teams yeah. meetings, um, and and that's how we're selling today. Uh, do you have any advice or any thoughts on, on how to be more successful in, in that environment or how to even manage to that? Because to your point about being remote and not going into an office and not having that collaboration is different. So any thoughts on how to successfully manage a remote team? Well, yes, uh, I, I managed all the teams I ever managed were always remote. And uh, I, I never in my entire career lived in the same city as my supervisor. So I was always remote to supervision. Mm -hmm. And so you have to learn how to be independent. You have to learn how to do things for yourself to succeed. And the thing that I liked about not going to the bullpen was avoiding the negativity. Because normally when you go into that bullpen, it's all people complaining and being negative about things versus positive. I want positive affirmation. So I would selectively talk to people who could help me positively. And then I was a positive resource for other people as well. And so that that's so important Uh, when you're independent like that. Again, you have to be able to plan to manage your own territory and your business. Mm -hmm. You have to think about it being your business. And I always thought about it that the customer was who paid me, but my 
company was the one who basically took and managed the funds and gave them to me. Right. So when I felt like I was working for the customer, I had a different attitude than if I felt like I was only working for my company. That's great. Um, and, you know, you talk about being independent. And I think as an outside salesperson or in this case, a, a, a virtual based salesperson, um, you know, it really does take that self-drive, right? To get up in the morning, to to plan your week, to plan your day, to plan your calls, and to, and to really go out there and have that that customer drive that you need to be successful. Um, and, and that's from the salesperson side. But can you give some insight to some of the, the, the sales managers out there, the sales leaders out there? Because a lot of times, and again, in my experience, it's it's sometimes it's hard to know what they're doing. And what is happening in the business, especially when you're not seeing those numbers hit? And how do you get from not micromanaging? Can you help with that? Well, that's, that's a great question. And they always say lead, follow, or get out of the way. Right. And one of the tendencies, especially for less experienced managers, are to interfere at the wrong time. Hmm. I like that. And not stay out of the way. Now, you need to know what's going on, and you should be able to get that from speaking to someone and seeing if certain activities agree with what you're being told. Hmm. And some people will tell you certain things that don't match what they're telling you, and some people will tell you things that do. And everyone that you manage is different. And that's what makes it fun, but more challenging because you have to have different techniques to lead them and inspire them to excel and meet their objectives. And Zig Ziglar said, you can get everything you want in life if you help enough other people get what they want, which is actually true. So you need to know what each of those people want. What numbers do they want? What income do they want? What comfort level? Uh, where, Where are they when they achieve a comfort level? And you really don't want salespeople to have an easy comfort level because that's where they'll go. Uh, You want them to be hungry and reaching ever higher all the time. Yeah, it's um, it's so funny that you even brought that up, because um, one of the things that that I've always said um, was, you know, you always want to know what those positive reinforcements um, are for those for those sales folks. You know, does does Sam, you know, do they want to, you know, eventually, you know, get a yacht or a boat or are they motivated by money or is Sandy motivated by family time and time off and vacation or, you know, or what's their motivational drive? Do they want to be leaders in the organization or? Or do they want to continue to sell as a leader? I believe you have to know all of those things about each of your individual sales folks to be able to help them um, effectively. You know, what, what say you? Well, yes, absolutely. The better you know that, the better off you'll be. One of the things that frustrated me toward the end of my corporate life, and I believe it's probably even worse now, were people when you bring them in to interview them for a sales rep position, they focus too much on the salary and not enough on the total compensation opportunity and the career opportunity. And my experience was the higher the salaries, the less the total opportunity for income was, because generally when you have to pay a higher salary up front, your producers are paying the non-producers because the non-producers aren't carrying their weight. Interesting. Interesting. Can you can you can you kind of expand on that a little bit? Because here's what's interesting is what you'll tend to find is that the, the producers a lot of times are the 90% of the revenue activity and the majority are not. Right. And I think that that might play into 
those that don't want to have the bigger commission side and maybe lean more on that salary side. That might be just one of the red flags potentially, but what, what do you think as to, as to why and how that is when it comes to, and maybe I'm not asking the right way, but what do you find with the, those that are actually the main drivers of the business and why is it that the others maybe don't pick up the slack? Well, I think, again, it goes back to comfort level. We we did a, a thing one year. It was the second year of that Bell & Howell operation. There were two comp plans set up for the sales reps. Huh. Uh, there was an A plan, which had a $12,000 salary. And basically, the only reason it had that versus zero was to get a rep to go do things they didn't want to do, where you could say, we're paying you this much, so we need to go pick up this piece of equipment. Whereas straight commission, which I did for nine years, some sales reps would say, hey, I'm straight commission. I, I don't have to do that. Hmm. Uh, the B plan we had was a $35,000 salary. Well, the A plan had a higher commission rate. And at the end of the year, all of the people on the A plan made more money than all the people on the B plan. And so the second year, everyone wanted the A plan and no one wanted the B plan. Right. And it died and never came alive again hmm. because people realized that there was an opportunity to make bigger money. And once people see that, then normally they will want more opportunity for that. And they'll recognize that they're better off with higher commission opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, and here's the other thing too, is, is I think what we find now is that you find sales folks that, you know, get a lot of experience under their belt. They've got some credentials, they've got some awards, they've presidents, you know, this, you know, award that. And then they're like, you know, Hey, I, I want that six figure salary. I, I earned that six figure salary and I'm, I'm not going to do the higher comp, you know, commission side. Um, is that a red flag or what are your thoughts on that? Well, well, I think your best missionary salespeople think about the high income mm -hmm. and how it's packaged is not as important as the opportunity. And for example, if you say there's a higher salary, but you'll have a top end, most salespeople don't want a top end. They'd rather have lower salary and have unlimited opportunity. Uncapped opportunity. Uh, mm -hmm. And the next thing I think that goes with that is, it always frustrated me when I'd interview salespeople and they'd say, how do I get my leads? Well, in my entire career, all the leads came from my hard work. I never right. expected to get any leads from anybody. And by doing that, I was much better off than sitting back expecting somebody to give something to me. And so, again, it just shows an attitude of a farmer versus a hunter. Yeah. And I think. If, if you listen to everything that we've been talking about today, um, if you really boil it down, right, it depends where your organization is. Are you a startup? Are you this corporation that's that's farming, you know, a billion dollars of revenue? Um, or are you trying to, to get your product out? And that's going to determine what type of salesperson you need. And then if you boil it down further from that, that really starts to talk about the right players for the right compensation um, that you need uh, in that role. Absolutely. And, and the better you understand that, just like identifying customer personalities, the better your hiring practices can be, the better your training practices can be. Uh, the best salespeople are always learning, always developing new techniques, always learning from the market. Uh, some of the people that I got frustrated with could succeed for a little while, but then they thought they knew everything and they stopped learning. Mm -hmm. And when markets shifted or products shifted or competitors shifted, they were not as successful because they did not continue to learn. 
Great. Well, let me ask you this, because I think a lot of managers and a lot of leaders out there um, that might want to hear from your from your many years of experience. You know, how do you deal with the unmotivated salesperson and how do you deal with the the toxic salesperson <laughs> that's that's spreading that negative word and picking up the phone and calling everybody on the team talking about, can you believe what Richard just said? And we've got to go do this. Well, the unmotivated person, I think you have to give them targets uh, of production, targets of activity. You have to see whether they can be motivated or not. Mm. And if they can't, you go ahead and move them out of the organization. Uh, If I had a toxic person, if they were toxic to me, I would have a a come to Jesus meeting with them, so to speak. And I've done that where I flew into a city and uh, sat down with a rep who ended up staying 30 years with the company afterwards because he got his attitude right. Mm. But a toxic person who's negative within the team, to me, I think you have to cut that off as quickly as possible. Yeah, that's great. That's, that's a, that's a really great point. So almost two different types of things here, right? Unmotivated. Can we motivate that person? If not, can they stay in the organization or do they need to be moved into a different role? The toxic person, get, get it out. It's, it's cancer, figure it out right away. And if, and if it can be solved, great. And if it can't, then, then, then they need to be out of the organization as well. Yeah. Most toxic people won't change. They're that way from their character. And you can occasionally make a hiring mistake and discover that after the fact. And it's best to get rid of it as quickly as possible. Let me ask you a question. And and this is something maybe selfishly I'll ask, but um, so you've got organizations that have, you know, really adopted hybrid sales models. So they might have half a um, contractor, 1099, um, and then you might have, say, half, you know, salaried employees. Um, it's, that's a tough task, right? So you've got a manager or a leader that has to lead two different types of, of roles, um, two different types of comp plans, two different motivating factors. Um, you got one that says, hey, I'm, I'm a contractor. I, I don't have to necessarily be anywhere at any time or any place in any fashion. Um, and I'll do as I please, but I'll make the sales. And then you've got the person where you can say, hey, do X, Y, and Z. Um, how do you motivate each of those individually and respectfully at the same time? Well, the first thing is with a salary person, they are dedicated to you and your organization. And of course, it's a much bigger investment in your business than a contractor. <laughs> a contractor, they're carrying around a binder full of brochures from different yep. companies. They represent multiple companies and they're going to sell the easiest thing to sell and the thing that makes the highest commission. And so the question is, why should they sell your product versus some of the other things that they're selling? And so you have to look at things such as exclusivity, uh, commission rates, spiffs, uh, other different things to try to incent them to prioritize your product versus others. Uh, Could be sales award trips, uh, things that you can do. Uh, on the negative side, if they're not producing yep. and you don't have an exclusive, then maybe you add someone in their market to compete against them ah, as yes. a lever. Yes. Uh, because what you're trying to do is stimulate behavior and there's carrot and stick. 
And I would not hesitate to use either one of them, depending on what behavior you're getting out of your contractor. Yeah, I like that. Let's let's dig in that a little bit uh, further, because I think, you know, a lot of times as leaders, um, you know, we we have to learn how to stimulate that behavior and we have to do it in a rewarding and positive way, you know, to really breed the right behavior in the organization. Um, do you have any good examples? Um, I like that. I like the lever of pulling, you know, kind of competition within a market. Do you have any other good examples that in your experience you could share with us? Well, I think the first thing, if I'm setting up a contractor, I want to know what their uh, objectives are with my product. Mm-hmm. I want them to set numbers to, and tell me the numbers they want to set because I want to see if that would agree with what my hopes would be. Yep. Uh, if we give them a number, then they may perform to that number, whereas, whereas if they come up with their own number, they may perform at a higher level. Yep. And so, of course, then the next question is, what support do they expect to be able to succeed and how can I help them succeed? And yeah. is that within my organization's uh, availability and capacity to do that? Yeah. Um, well, it's so funny that you said that actually um, <laughs> literally um almost verbatim. Uh, I, I said the exact same thing. Um, when it comes to your independent contractor, I think the first thing that needs to happen in that position and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but finding out what their plan is and how they're going to get to that plan. Like, what is it that they, you know, what is their objective? Like, do they want to make an extra three grand a month or do they want to make an extra 30 grand a month? Right. And, and they really, you need to hear that plan from them so you can figure out how you're going to effectively build that, you know, to support them the way they need to be supported for that. I think that's fantastic. Yes. The short time I worked in that kind of environment, uh, you basically wanted every product you could get so that if you walked into a prospect's office and you were talking to them, if they asked for something, you had it, not your competitor, you had it. Now, you may never sell certain of those products, but you wanted to have all of them available. Well, if there's no uh, quotas, if there's no targets, no performance expectations, well, then anybody can rep a product if they don't have to perform. Right. And so you've got to be able to have uh, performance expectations and delivery from both sides to make it work. Well, I'll tell you what, that is the perfect segue. We could not possibly do a sales or a sales leadership call without talking about performance and revenue and quotas. So um, why don't we talk about that for a second? So as a, as a leader, as mm-hmm. a manager, right, that is stressful. Hey, uh, Corporation A needs to obtain $100,000 in monthly revenue or quarterly revenue. That trickles down from the board or said, you know, um, you know, executive leadership. And now as, as a sales leader, you got to disseminate that out to your team and you got to hit those quotas and those objectives. How do you, A, you know, foster the the ability for your team to do that, but not also streamline that same stress and throttling them in a way to create that negativity? So how do you how do you breed the results that you need without delivering the stress? Well, first first thing is I I never met a sales rep who thought they had enough territory. (laughs) I never met a sales rep that agreed with a quota. They always thought their quotas were too high and their territories were too small. There you go. And so you would tell them that 
you're better off if you only have a territory that's one high rise building because you can be much more efficient than if you have a territory that's 10,000 square miles, for example. Uh, but sales reps generally don't believe that. They want right. more territory and less quota. Right. Uh, and what I would always tell them is the worst thing, and I had this happen, uh, the first division of Bell & Howell, I, when I left there, they were 250 sales reps. A few years later, they had 12 because the technology died. Mm -hmm. And so what I learned from that was if your territory is growing and your quota is shrinking, that means the business is dying. You want territories to shrink and quotas to go up because that means your business is growing. Wow. So that is a very, very important thing, I think, from a business standpoint. So there, there's two measurements I would tell reps. One is making your quotas one measurement. But the second is, is where do you stand in the rankings of the sales reps? So, for example, if you're 150 percent of quota, you think, well, that's a pretty good year. But if you're at the bottom of your sales ranking at 150 percent, that's not as good. That means that the executive set the wrong quotas for everybody. That's right. Now, conversely, if you're 75% of quota and you're number one amongst all the sales reps, that means you did well. And yes, the sales leader still predicted the wrong, <laughs> the wrong revenue yeah, model. Yeah, it was, yeah too, too, too high of a standard, right? But you're, Exactly. So, yeah. so there's multiple ways to look at that. And it helps reps because I've seen reps that were Hall of Fame sales reps mm -hmm. who would have years where they were 75% and question their abilities, but yet the quotas had been set wrong. Huh. And so they really were performing well. It's just the executives had not set the quotas right. Well, that is, that's really, that's a very fascinating point that I bet you a lot of upper management and a lot of leaders tend to overlook because if you don't set the right quota and the right revenue goals, you can really lead to a demotivated sales staff. Well, absolutely. And I've, I'd only saw twice where quotas were changed mid-year uh -huh. and both times in two different methods, it created negative responses because there's a lack of trust from the sales reps when people are doing that. And one, they have a hard enough time once a year with quota assignments. Right, right. But two, when you're modifying them in the middle of a year, uh, that's another question. And, and generally, the feeling is anytime quotas or comp plans change, it's always at the sales rep expense. So once you can come up with a, a comp plan that works, my philosophy always was to try to minimize the number of of changes to it from a structural standpoint, because every time you change something structurally, it was always received negatively. Absolutely. It's, 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 it's destabilizing, right? And it, as salespeople, it's just, you know, it throws you off your game and then you start to question and, and it really just takes you off that path um, uh, to success. Well, let me ask you this. And, and, you know, before we wrap up here, um, what, do you do in the instance if you're leading, but you've got a good salesperson, but you're not hitting their their number, right? And and then the more and more you don't see those numbers, even if you're a sales manager, you're not hitting a number. Um, you know how do you how do you continue? Because what ends up happening is you get more and more. I I call it you know closer to that you know stress level, and then so it's like almost becomes that level of desperation, and then you become even harder to sell because you're desperate. So how do you how do you mitigate? that 
<laughs> well, if I've got somebody who I know is good and they're not performing, the first thing I want to find out is, is there something outside of work that is inhibiting them? Do they have family problems, oh, uh, some other kind of issue, health issue, financial issues or something else going on? And I would just come up front and say, hey, I know you're a, a top performer, but you're not performing now. Is there something going on? Is there something I can help with? Uh, how can I help you with your performance to get back up to your normal level um, at the top? That's that is great advice. I bet a lot of people don't mm-hmm. think about that. Well, it's too often if you've got somebody who's a proven performer that there's something else going on. And if you may not be able to do anything about it, but if you're aware of it, then you may be able to make certain adjustments within the business to allow for it so that you don't end up mismanaging that person and driving them away. And then they get over that situation and go succeed someplace else. Wow. That's, that's, that's really, you're exactly right. And we don't want to lose good salespeople. And that sends another ripple wave throughout the the entire organization. Um, Richard, let let me ask you a question. So, you know, kind of to to close this up here. So you've written eight books. Can you, can you share us a little bit about your, your authorship and and some of the books that you've written and and how you got into that? Well, I never dreamed of writing one book. My (laughs) English teachers never dreamed of me reading a book. (laughs) And the first book I wrote was many years ago on volunteer leadership And the reason I wrote it, and this goes back to sales, is I taught a course uh, on volunteer leadership in an organization I'd been in for six years to the presidents of these local chapters in the state of Texas, biggest cities. And what I learned after two or three years was their successors had not learned anything from the predecessors I taught. And so I decided I needed to codify that and put it into a book that would be easier to train more people. So all of the things I've done have been nonfiction things to try to help people uh, attain more personal growth, attain their dreams and satisfaction. And one of the works is the master sales secrets where I have 44 strategies uh, from my sales and executive management career. And we've also just released recently an online self-paced sales course for an introductory sales course. This isn't for experienced salespeople, but businesses who can't really afford to provide a sales course for new people, this online self-paced course. And all of these things can be found at my website, richardbattle.com. And I can be communicated with Richard at richardbattle.com with anyone who'd like to discuss it. Absolutely. So it's, um, Self-paced sales course. That's great for, for those companies that need to have somebody, you know, to get their sales staff, getting them trained and they can, you know, find this at, at Richard battle, B A T T L E.com. Is that right? That's correct. Richardbattle.com and Richard, and you're also available for, for coaching and some, some consulting one-on-one. That's exactly correct. And, and my style of leadership is always a coaching style. Mm-hmm. And so what I like to do is look at activity and then come in and coach like I'm looking at game film. Mm. Okay, let's examine what happened. Let's talk about different alternatives that we might employ the next time. And what I always advocated for reps were one, get the deal two, maximize your commission and three, learn something that would help you on the next deal. 
Absolutely. And I'll tell you what, Richard, just from, from working with you and having some, some personal experience with you, um, I can definitely tell the, the listeners out there, if there's an opportunity to, to really need to grow your sales staff and to really, you know, build that purpose-driven business and, and attain more revenue, um, definitely, definitely reach out to Richard. Um, you are fantastic, sir. And um, you're just a, an amazing leader and, and really appreciate having you on today. Well, it's my, my pleasure and uh, happy to join you today. Thank you so much, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you.